0: Iroh, Seattle.
1: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program... The Share, the Madonna of Children's Music,
2: Rafi. Baby Beluga in the deep blue sea. Swim so wild and you swim so free. Heaven above and the sea below. And a little white whale on the go.
1: Rafi is arguably the world's most famous performer of children's music. And he's also a huge advocate for children. He has a nonprofit called the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring. He's a very outspoken environmentalist and activist for climate change, and his values greatly influence the way he eats. Rafi has eaten mostly vegetarian for decades.
2: Russell sprouts, mmm, broccoli, mmm.
1: <laughs> Rafi loves pesto which is a seemingly simple sauce to make, but every time I've attempted it, it has been mediocre at best. So Daniel Gritzer, culinary director for Serious Eats, is going to teach us the secret to making the brightest, creamiest, bestest homemade pesto. I am very excited to try his method. And keeping with the theme of children's entertainment and food... I chat with Erica Thormelin and Jeremy Connor, creators of the wonderful new Netflix show, Waffles and Mochi. It's a food program for kids that happens to be the very first show produced by the Obama's new production company.
0: The second we met with Michelle, if I can call her Michelle, I don't even know. I'm still nervous and freaked out.
1: So much goodness ahead. I am very excited about this episode. So let's get started with my conversation with Rafi. Baby the little
2: Oh, baby beluga. Heaven above and the sea below. And a little white whale on the You're just a little white whale
1: on the I was shocked when I looked at your Twitter page and I saw that coincidentally, baby beluga is exactly the same age as me. Baby beluga turned 40 last year, um, which is so crazy as what you call a beluga grad, which is people who grew up with your music and then magically turned into adults. Um, (laughs) Who knew? So what is it like to span so many generations?
2: It's an enormous privilege to be a friend to millions of families in Canada and the United States and to hear from my fans say, your music was the soundtrack of my childhood. What an honor to hear that. I'm just uh, very humbled and grateful uh, that the music still brings so much joy to so many.
1: Rafi started playing guitar as a teenager, and he dropped out of university his sophomore year to pursue the folk music that he loved so much. But it wasn't until years later, when his now ex-wife, who was a kindergarten teacher, suggested that he play children's music, that his career as a musician really took off. There's a quote in your book, The Life of a Children's Troubadour. You said that you, quote, hated singing to inebriated audiences who couldn't care less if he was there or not. And that was talking about singing for adults before you started your children's music career. And it actually made me laugh because uh, one of my first guests on this show four years ago was Chris Ballew, who fronts Casper Baby Pants, uh, Mm -hmm. another children's musician. And he said that playing for kids felt like playing for drunk adults because... They are walking up onto the stage unexpectedly and asking questions that have nothing to do with anything. And they kind of dance like drunk people. And I was wondering if you've noticed a similar comparison.
2: No. (laughs) (laughs) No, my, um, my career has offered me wonderful concert experiences where the children and the families I've sung with have been an absolute delight finding children as the audience I was meant to to make music for because that you know that was an important discovery was tied to the fact that I learned that children love mu- music they love to sing songs are a wonderful way a fun way for children to both learn about the world around them and uh, the world of feelings and emotions inside them and so when I found out how important music could be in the life of young children I embrace that. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate to have a career that has not only fed my audience with good music, but has fed me as well. Speaking of food.
1: <laughs> you are Armenian, but you were born in Egypt. You moved to Canada when you were 10 years old. I'm just curious what was it like eating in your house?
2: Well, in my Armenian family, there was uh, a lot of delicious food, you know, from uh, the rice pilav to. The grandmothers would make uh, a thin pizza-type thing called lahmajun, which is quite uh, well-known in the Middle East. It would either be, you know, lamb or uh, some other meat. and Anyway, it would be about 10 inches round and very thin and piping hot, and you would uh, sprinkle lemon on it and roll it up and eat it. It was delicious. Um, I actually just was,
1: had that dish for the first time a couple months ago and it was so delicious.
2: Yeah, it's really good. There were things like hummus and um what's that smoked eggplant dish we like um eggplant yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and olives, oh my god, olives, all kinds of good things, you know, growing up in my Armenian family. The feta cheese was a staple. That wasn't going anywhere. Uh, I grew up you know, eating a lot of feta cheese and love it to this day, I must say.
1: Rafi eventually moved to Vancouver, B.C. And about 13 years ago, he left City Life for Salt Spring Island, a small, beautiful community just east of Vancouver Island. Tell me, what would you choose for your last meal if you could pick something that was your favorite thing that you wanted to eat for the rest of your life, perhaps?
2: Well, how about pesto? Mmm, I love Pesto. One of my favorite meals is, and maybe it was the last meal I had. (laughs) I get my pesto locally made here on Salt Spring Island, where I live. There's an Italian deli, and they make excellent homemade pesto. So it saves me from making that. So I bring that home, and I have gluten-free pasta. It could be wild rice pasta that's gluten-free. I make a pasta dish that's got those ingredients in it, uh, along with steamed vegetables. And my favorite veggies to steam are beets that I dice into small pieces so it won't take too long <laughs> to steam them. Brussels sprouts, mm. and <laughs> organic, organic broccoli, mm. <laughs> So the pasta with the pesto and then the veggies on top and then two or three toppings like diced avocado, diced uh cherry tomatoes and pitted kalamata olives throw all that together and you've got a mm, mm, comfort meal that's so tasty and healthy
1: that sounds so good and it sounds so west coast it's so green
2: some well if you want to make it even more west coast sometimes you add wild salmon to it Ooh. (laughs)
1: <laughs> somebody likes food <laughs> <laughs> No, I know you're getting woo woo early in the morning no, I love it <laughs> Raffi's last meal is pesto mixed with gluten-free pasta topped with steamed veggies avocado, tomatoes and kalamata olives when we come back Be prepared to nerd out completely on every single element necessary to making the world's best pesto. Eat, eat
2: apples and bananas. I like to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. I like to eat, 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 eat apples and bananas. I like to oot and balloons. I like to oot good and balloons.
1: For his last meal, Raffi wants pasta with pesto, an Italian sauce that we eat all year round, but is truly a summer dish when basil is in season. What is the definition of pesto? What makes something a pesto?
3: Pesto comes from The verb, Italian verb, pestare, which means to pound or smash.
1: That's Daniel Gritzer, culinary director at Serious Eats.
3: Pesto essentially is any sauce that has been smashed, which if we then connect it to a very specific ancient cooking tool, uh, the mortar and pestle, you then hear the word pesto in the word pestle. At its root, a pesto should be pounded in a pounding device, which is the mortar and pestle. The most famous pesto would be the Ligurian one, pesto alla Genovese, which is the, when most people think of pesto, this is what they're thinking of. It's basil, olive oil, usually pine nuts, cheese, garlic, worked into a sauce.
1: Daniel has spent a lot of time testing pesto recipes and methods for serious eats. In my own cooking, I find that the more simple the recipe, the harder time I have getting it right. Like, still can't make pet pepe. I just can't. It took me <laughs> yeah. for... It's just like wet and watery and weird. And then... I can help you with that. We you do this whole separate thing. <laughs> oh my God. I would love yeah. that because I feel like I'm a pretty good cook and I can't... I can't emulsify. And then the same is true with pesto. You know, I use yeah. all of the ingredients that it says to use. So what is the secret to making really delicious pesto that is that really vibrant, bright green color? Because Sometimes mine gets very dark and I can taste the darkness in it.
3: You know, once you crush the cells in the basil leaves, they're exposed to air, they can oxidize this darkening right where the cuts happen. And so one of the things that can help stave it off is if you can build, you just mentioned the, the emulsions. And so even for something like pesto, you're trying to build an emulsion.
1: So instead of just dumping all the ingredients into a food processor and blitzing it, you need to add them one by one. In a particular order. We're going to get to that in a moment, but first, Daniel breaks down each ingredient.
3: If you travel to Liguria and you talk to someone there, they may tell you if they're very strict about their pesto, which is <laughs> somewhat likely if you're there, is first of all, you have the basil. And in Liguria, the truly great basil is this um, basil that's from Pra basilico di pra and it's a specific variety of basil it's grown in a very specific place there's sort of regional designations for where it can grow and it's picked young and it's considered to have a milder flavor that's more delicate that's very hard if you're not living uh, in Liguria. Or... So there's the basil. This is super important. Then you have the olive oil. Uh, again, you know, in Liguria, they would say oh, it has to be Ligurian olive oil, which tends to be, I mean, a more delicate, more mild, less spicy olive oil than, say, a lot of olive oils coming out of Tuscany, just a little ways south. And then the pine nuts, um, you have the cheese, there's usually Parmigiano reggiano and also a pecorino cheese called fiore sardo or pecorino sardo. It's a sheep's milk cheese, but it's not as sharp and kind of spicy as a pecorino romano. And you can hear as I'm sort of talking my way through the ingredient list, in the ideal world, you're getting the the more delicate, the less assertive version of each of these ingredients.
1: Okay, so you're not going to be able to get all or maybe any of these exact ingredients here in the United States, but Daniel says that's okay. The most important thing is the method. To make the silkiest, creamiest, most delicious pesto, you have to turn to its namesake the mortar and pestle.
3: You know, obviously in in the modern world, the convenience of a food processor or a blender is um, undeniable, but the mechanism of making the pesto is just different because in one of those machines, you have a spinning blade that is really just doing very high speed chopping. And so if you were to look at your pesto under a microscope, you would probably see these like tiny little flecks of minced up basil. Whereas in a mortar and pestle, you are crushing the leaves, and you're pulverizing them, and you're basically breaking, you know, every cell of the basil open, and so the sauce becomes more aromatic because you're releasing more from the leaves through this crushing motion. It takes on this kind of a silkier texture, and I think it's easier to get that emulsion. If, so, that, you know, there's there's a lot to it. I probably probably went off topic there at some point.
1: <laughs> no, I'm with you. I want to know because I'm tired of mediocre pesto. If you're familiar with the recipes up on SeriousEats.com, you already know that they are food-obsessed perfectionists. They love to get into the nitty-gritty science of cooking. They love to test, 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 test until they land on the best way to cook something. Long story short, these are cooking nerds. So buckle up, my friends. We are going to Nerdtown, mortar and pestle edition. Daniel says after years of making pesto, he's decided that having the right kind of mortar and pestle is key.
3: And this is a hard one. This is a really hard one because of it's hard to get the right kind and they're expensive. So I think a lot of people at home, if they even have a mortar and pestle, let's just ignore the smaller ones. Generally more for like grinding spices and that kind of thing. But a larger one, there's a good chance a lot of folks at home in the United States will have a ceramic mortar and pestle. And I have learned over the years that even though kitchenware stores routinely sell them, they really are more kind of apothecary mortar and pestles for in the olden days of pharmacy, if you were crushing up medicines (laughs) and they're really not well suited to the kitchen at all. Hmm. The striking area of the pestle is generally too narrow. And so you're doing a lot of kind of chasing your food around the mortar, almost like a game of whack-a-mole. It's just not that effective truly the best one is a marble mortar with a wooden pestle. And this is a really traditional style to the Mediterranean. You see them in the South of France, you see them in Italy. They are very hard to find here. I I own one. I ordered it through Etsy from an Italian manufacturer and it was not cheap. Hmm. But what you get with those is a really broad pestle head so you get more, you know, contact points on the surface between the pestle and the mortar, which is helpful in a sauce like pesto. And then, you know, I would just to be really clear, it's all relative to the cuisine. So a Thai style granite mortar and pestle is not worse than the Mediterranean one. It is perfect for making things like curry paste, where you're busting up much more fibrous ingredients than you see in anything like a pesto. So it's really kind of cuisine specific, and it makes a huge, huge difference. I just- unfortunately.
1: <laughs> yeah. You have to have like four different mortar and pestles for each cuisine that you're cooking. All right. So you have your marble mortar, which is a really hard thing to say. Marble mortar, 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 mortar. And your wooden pestle. And of course, all of your ingredients that were grown in the Ligurian region of Italy. So it's time to make the pesto. Daniel says to start by pounding the garlic.
3: The garlic can act as an emulsifier. And you have to be careful with this because you don't want to oversalt the sauce, but you can use salt throughout the process as not only to season it, uh, but also as an abrasive salt, especially if it's sort of a more coarse sea salt, will help in that mortar and pestle to grind things up. So you're, you know, breaking down the garlic.
1: Then you add your raw, untoasted pine nuts and start smashing them into the garlic to make a paste. And then you add the basil.
3: It's a lot of uh, elbow grease. There's no doubt if you're going the traditional mortar and pestle route.
1: From start to finish, you should be pounding for 8 to 10 minutes.
3: Then working in the olive oil in a slow, steady stream while still continuing to work the mixture. And that's building the emulsion, kind of like you would with, with a mayonnaise, that slow incorporation of the oil. And finally, working in the cheese at the end.
1: The result is a silky, completely emulsified, vivid green sauce with no visible oil. Each ingredient has melded together to become one. I always liked pesto fine enough. I never disliked it, but I thought it was okay. And then when I was in Cinque Terre, which is in the Liguria region of Italy, I had mm-hmm. pesto and it completely changed my opinion. It was that super, super vibrant, bright green. It tasted mm-hmm. like that bright green. It tasted very different than anything I'd had before. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, you, you said earlier that In an ideal world, you would use all of these ingredients that were grown or harvested in that region. We live in this global society where you can go to your regular old supermarket and get food from all around the world. So we're used to thinking, you know, I can make this at home. Is this something that you just simply cannot make as well as it would be made in Italy just because you need those ingredients? This is
3: such a hard one to answer because it's very difficult to separate an empirical measure of quality. From the, you know, psychological effects of being in a place like Cinque Terre while you're eating pesto, (laughs) uh, you know, the the experience can have a powerful impact. Going to the place where the sauce is from, having it made, you know, let's say by somebody who's who's very skilled at making it um, because they're making it all the time in the place where it's from. Using the ingredients that this sauce sort of came into existence using, it's going to be hard to top that. But I think you can make great pesto at home, wherever you are. So I I do not think pesto is uh, something that falls under the, you know, the umbrella of eat it in its place of origin or forget it by any means. A really good pesto, like you said, it's bright green, and it's kind of um, creamy, right? Almost like a thin guacamole. Having people who really know how to accomplish that, you know with consistency, there's a huge advantage there. The rest of us have to spend a lot more time practicing to to reach that level of skill.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that myself included a lot of home cooks are up against is you make something once and it doesn't turn out great. So you think, oh, that's not good. I'm not good at making this or it's a bad recipe and then I'll just never make it again. I've never actually thought about practicing something and getting better at it. I just think, oh, that recipe's a bust, I'm done.
3: No, you got to go back at it. You know, I'm—I've been a professional cook for uh, I don't know, 15 plus years. I've worked in food media for now more than a decade, developing recipes for many years. I've lived in Italy. I've worked on farms in Italy. Like I've—I have a lot of experience, and I still find that with any one thing, there's so many nuances. This is where recipes can, you know, be challenging because they're trying to give a universal set of instructions Then go out into the world and people try to reproduce those instructions on an infinitely variable set of conditions, you know, different equipment, different stoves, different ingredients, different, you name it. And there's a point at which the recipe just can't account for all of that. There are good recipes and there are bad recipes, but so much of it is also doing things and figuring out in your own space with your own senses, to a level of comfort where, where you feel like, oh, I, I have figured this out for myself. That's all about practice.
1: Yeah, practice, that had that had never occurred to me. So now you have your perfect pesto. Daniel teaches us how to properly mix it into your pasta.
3: I think, you know, the other thing that I would really encourage um, folks to, to familiarize themselves with regarding pesto has to do with really trying not to cook the sauce. We're pasta obsessed at Serious Eats, and we spend a lot of time trying to educate about pasta technique. And one of the main techniques we we teach our readers is to finish cooking your pasta in the sauce. So you boil your pasta, you heat your sauce in a separate pan, and when the pasta is done, you transfer the pasta to the pan with a little bit of the starchy pasta cooking water, and you finish them cooking together. And this is a very established technique in Italy, but uh, pesto breaks this one. You do not want to finish the pasta on the heat with the pesto sauce because you really do want to preserve those fresh flavors. And so the process of finishing the pesto is a bit different. You boil your pasta and you have your pesto in like a serving bowl or a mixing bowl or something like that, room temperature, and you transfer your cooked pasta to it so it warms it up. And you do add a little bit of that starchy pasta cooking water. So it's, it is hot, but there's no additional stovetop time. And so the whole finishing of the pesto is stirring the cooked pasta with a little bit of that starchy water in the pesto sauce off the heat to build that nice creamy sauce on the pasta. And in most cases, that is the, the better way, dare I say, to cook and serve pesto.
1: That is a great tip. I haven't made pesto in a long time because I was tired of having mediocre pesto so I am really excited to try out this method I have a molcajete which is a big Mexican mortar and pestle that's made out of volcanic rock usually Uh, it's not ideal Daniel says he's never actually tested it but I think it's worth seeing what happens because it's the only mortar and pestle that I have. Okay, time for a quick break. But when we come back, Raffi weighs in on what may be the most classic kid food in America, or at least it was in my generation. And you'll hear the incredible story of how the creators of Waffle & Mochi turned a little puppet show into a Netflix show that critics from the New Yorker to the LA Times have been raving about. Your first album singable songs for the very young there's a little comment on the front of the album that says great with a peanut butter sandwich which i love um <laughs> and the peanut butter sandwich is kind of the all-time classic kids food so two questions first of all do you like peanut butter sandwiches
2: oh yeah uh, especially with um organic strawberry jam
1: mm, okay that's part of my second question is i want to know your perfect version of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich including everything from creamy or crunchy. You already said jam of choice. What kind of (laughs) bread do you like it cut in half or triangle? And a lot of people are very particular about like where you put the peanut butter and the jelly on the bread. Like, are they on each side? Please build me your (laughs) sandwich.
2: Oh my God. Okay. Uh, here's what I'm going to say these days, because there's Some people have peanut butter allergies, right? Yeah. The song, if I wrote it today, it might have been an almond butter sandwich (laughs) made with jam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On gluten-free bread.
2: (laughs) You wouldn't be surprised to hear that I have almond butter on gluten-free toast of various kinds, um, along with, as I said, my organic strawberry jam, which I love. So that's how I have it these days.
1: And do you like crunchy or creamy peanut butter?
2: Uh, smooth,
1: smooth. Okay, and it is interesting. Al- almond butter. Oh yeah, almond <laughs> butter. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, they don't. They only make one kind then, right? They don't really do chunkier. Smooth, well, no, they do. They, they, they got chunky and
2: smooth. Okay, but it doesn't matter. Peanut butter is great too. It's
1: fine. And you do it on toast, which is a big difference mm. because then you get like the melting of the almond butter, which is like a different experience altogether.
2: Mmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're making me hungry. <laughs>
1: uh huh. <laughs> That's what we do here
2: peanut butter sandwich made with jam. One for me and one for David Amram. A peanut butter sandwich made with
1: a peanut butter and jelly sandwich may be an American classic. But of course, North America is home to immigrants from all over the world, many of whom have never had a peanut butter sandwich or fed one to their child. Culinary diversity is the central theme of a new kid's show on Netflix called Waffles and Mochi.
4: Hi, I'm Waffles and this is Mochi. Well, well, hello, Waffles and Mochi. Are you ready for an amazing adventure? Mm. Uh, 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 uh. Wow, it's like a
1: rainbow in my mouth. Waffles and Mochi are puppets, they're best friends, and they've lived their entire lives in the land of frozen food. But they aspire to be chefs. So they take off on an adventure all around the world to learn about fresh foods, like tomatoes, for the very first time. Their home base is a grocery store run by no other than Michelle Obama. And they fly around the world meeting everyday families and chefs, like past Your Last Meal guests, Samin Nosrat, and Jose Andres, who teaches them how to make gazpacho. Waffles and Mochi is the brainchild of longtime friends, Erica Thormelin, a former
4: actor and educator, and Jeremy Connor, co-creator of Drunk History. So Jeremy and I have been friends for a long, 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 long time. And back in the day, I got really obsessed with the idea of doing a food show with puppets with the help of a lot of starving artist friends put together like a shoestring, uh, not really a pilot, but kind of like a short um, with some puppets that we made. And it was called what's cooking with waffles and mouse meat. And the premise of the show was, you know, Peewee's playhouse in the kitchen. It was anchored around a lot of the kind of food network shows that were really popular, you know, back in the early aughts, except our hosts were two puppets. Anyway, yeah, that didn't go anywhere. It just went straight to YouTube where I think we garnished like 450 views or something. In any case, yeah, that didn't go anywhere because at the time there weren't any shows or um, a real hunger to see kids in the kitchen. I think there was a lot of fear around, you know, insurance liability, that kind of stuff. And so I put that project in a drawer literally and figuratively. And we both kind of went our merry way. I moved to New York and went got my master's in education, teaching preschool, trying to work in kids media. Jeremy went on to co-create Drunk History and some other great stuff. And our lives just sort of went in two different paths that we kept in touch, you know, would see each other at, at friends' weddings, et cetera. And then, yeah, we ran into one another again. It was On a visit to Los Angeles, I was having lunch um, at Little Dom's with a friend having tuna sandwiches. And Jeremy was in the booth behind us. And it was like, oh, hey, what's up? And then you got up to leave and I still see it in my head perfectly. You were like swinging the front door open and you were like, hey, we should make that food show because my my son, George, he won't eat a tomato. And I went home that night. And like immediately Facebook messaged Jeremy and was like, let's do it.
1: 15 years later, Erica and Jeremy renewed their passion for the puppet project, but they couldn't get anyone to bite until I want to hear about how you got connected with Michelle Obama, because, oh my God, I mean, you just can't ever get over that. I can't imagine either of you will ever get over the fact that you're making this show with her. So how did you get connected?
0: Um, It sort of goes back to a panel that I did at South by Southwest with Priya Swami Nathan, who uh, now runs Higher Ground, Obama's production company with Netflix. So we did this panel and afterwards we went out and had barbecue and sort of just became kind of friends. But then we didn't talk for a few years. So when Erica and I started putting together this concept, I was in L.A., she was in New York. And when we finished it, we sent it to a few people, um, my agents and managers, who all honestly thought I was bonkers. Um, and they were like, this is an interesting career move. You want to make a puppet show? <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> I, I, um, when
1: you put it like I was that. like, no, but it's
0: cool, man. <laughs> I swear, this, they eat. <laughs> They're like, that doesn't make it any cooler. So we sent it out to some production companies, and we never heard anything back <laughs> uh, you didn't which wouldn't
1: get rejected right you just heard nothing
0: it was nothing it was it was not a pass uh there was no rejection honestly it's possible my agents and managers were just like let's not say this but one day after a few months we had seen on deadline that priya swami nathan had been tapped to run higher ground and i started jokingly texted erica like wouldn't that be cool should we send it to her and everyone's like, ah, uh, are you kidding? Of course. I honestly did not think we would hear anything back. But we sent it to Priya. And I think it was about 24 hours later that we got a message from her saying, we think this is could be perfect for them. And then we met her a week later. And she was like, yeah, Michelle and Barack love it. They want to do it. Uh, they think this is the perfect first project for their new Netflix deal. You know, this is the first show that they ever made, and Priya was like, "When we started talking about higher ground, kids programming was never uh, something we mentioned." But then we read this, and we were like, "Wow, of course, of course, we need to do kids programming."
1: So, can you talk about how the Obamas influenced the taste bud segment that you put into the
0: show? Well, the Obama—I mean, Michelle. Well, I'll be honest. There was not a ton of barack influence yeah but he didn't come in and meet with us and we showed him a sizzle and he was like a sizzle well in my day we called that a trailer we're like oh cool okay. <laughs> um and then he got a little upset that we didn't bring him emoji because we had brought one for michelle and he was like why don't i get one <laughs> we're like um we'll get you one I, I we can make it work out but yeah no the second we met with michelle If I can call her Michelle, I don't even know. I'm still nervous and freaked out whenever (laughs) we reference her. She's like, Mrs. Obama. I'll just call her Mrs. Obama. But when we met with her, you know, she walked in, we were told you're going to get 15 minutes with Mrs. Obama. She's the busiest lady in the world. It's going to be really buttoned up and tight. And we're very nervous going into this thing. And then we walked in and she was just like, Let's talk about it all and let me tell you about my experiences with food and I only ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for years and I didn't have an artichoke till I was in college and she started talking about how her taste buds are different than Barack's taste buds and how she grew up in the Midwest and he grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia so they had all these different ideas of flavor and taste. And we just started riffing for an hour and a half. She came up with a ton of stuff that ended up in the show. We were really collaborative.
1: And why did you think it was important to have a food show for kids?
0: We started thinking, okay, you know, when we first set out to do this years and years and years ago, it was all modeled off of cooking shows. And now there's this new wave of sort of food shows, right? It's sort of Bourdain blazed the trail. And then there's David Chang and Samin Nostrat and Somebody Feed Phil and food and travel, we decided that would be the model for this. It was really important going forward to just get kids excited about the concept of food and culture and how we all globally eat many of the same ways, you know, and and food is really the thing that connects us all across the globe.
1: Each episode of Waffles and Mochi explores a single ingredient, corn, salt, Mushrooms, potatoes, tomatoes.
0: We decided we are going to make a show that is about healthy cooking and about good food and eating well. And we will never say the words good for you or bad for you. We'll never say the word healthy or unhealthy. There is no food shaming. We'll never talk about junk food. We'll never, ever talk about the eat a carrot because it's filled with vitamins. Right. Bourdain would never do that. Right. David Chang Samin, they wouldn't talk about food that way. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to just get kids excited.
1: So let's talk about Michelle Zamora, who is the puppeteer behind waffles. Um, I loved learning that unlike Cookie Monster, the puppets could actually eat the food so that it wasn't just flying all over the place. Can you talk about the other part of this, about what Michelle would do when waffles, the puppet would taste something?
4: Yeah, it was really important from the jump that our puppets ate food convincingly. That was something we wanted to portray realistically and felt fabric and food rarely mix. So that was like a feat of engineering in terms of our puppet building, our puppet builder Swazel, who created waffles and mochi. And then when we went to shoot, it was vitally important that Waffle's reaction be super authentic, just like you or I or Jeremy would react if Massimo Bottura fed us a spoonful of tortellini. So on the day when we were shooting, um, it was really fun to see Jeremy be like, okay, now feed Michelle Zamora, the puppeteer. And then you would watch her take this bite. We would all (laughs) have just come from our like motel breakfast, (laughs) you know, and our stomachs were grumbling. And then Michelle was being spoon fed the beautiful bites of food and then she would play the scene with sometimes with that food still, you know, sort of macerating in her mouth. Um, and then her reaction would just come alive. She was able to really draw from the flavors and tastes and textures she was experiencing, I think, in a way that a food show for children needed to do because you really want a child to be experiencing that food along with waffles. Part of the show's mission is to target picky eaters and show them how good those foods can be. So I was a notoriously picky eater. Um, Dinner time was a battle. My mother enjoyed cooking, but she didn't ever invite me into the kitchen. So I think looking back on that, it would have helped had I played a bigger part in food prep because the few foods that I did like were very specific and looking back a little weird. I love fried trout. And that was because my dad was a fly fisherman and that was a family event. We would go to the river, we would fish, we'd come home, mom would gut the fish. I could hang out at the kitchen sink and kind of see all the ooey gooey bits. Like it demystified that process. And I wanted fried trout all the time, so much so that mom was like, no more fried trout because gutting fish is not like a chill activity. Same with like tomatoes, which, and it's funny, Jeremy, you grew up hating tomatoes, but I love them because we would go pick them on the side of the road at a farm in Oregon. There's just a real atmosphere and a real kind of bonding that's happening when you're doing it with your family and it's, you're picking, you're smelling, you're looking, you're tasting. And it, again, it just brings you up close to your food. I think in a way that takes the fear out of it, makes it fun, makes it exciting, makes it your own. And I think that's what we're trying to do through the screen um, on Netflix, you know, with waffles and mochi.
1: I read in an article, Jeremy, that your kid will now eat tomatoes because of the show. Your plan worked.
0: My plan worked. He loves them. I mean, I don't know if he loves them. He loves playing with them and experimenting.
1: We all have food memories from our childhoods. Like Erica's trout story, my dad got me to love eating whole fried smelt by calling them delicious, nutritious little fishes. And Rafi has a story he's never forgotten.
2: In fourth grade uh, in Toronto, Mrs. McKinnon one day noticed that I forgot to bring my lunch to school. And rather than let me go hungry, she shared her grilled cheese sandwich with me. And it's a kindness I've never forgotten.
1: Wow, that's so sweet.
2: It touched me deeply, yeah. Yeah
1: also just because i noticed these things like did she make a grilled cheese how is it still hot and melty or was it from the cafeteria where did this sandwich come from
2: (laughs) (laughs) you would ask wouldn't you (laughs) i I don't know the answer to that question but that's what it was i remember being warm uh so i don't quite know how she did that
1: she warmed it with her heart she grilled the cheese with
2: her heart oh beautifully said rachel yes there it is
1: And that was Rafi's Last Meal. Well,
2: Rachel, I I want to say this has been a delicious conversation. Mm.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't heard any of his music since you were a kid, he's written a lot of new songs about Black Lives Matter, about essential workers during the pandemic, and lots of music about climate change. Young
2: people marching, striking for climate. Millions and millions of young people marching, marching for our planet. Marching for
1: their lives. Check out his work with kids at raffifoundation.org. Thanks to Daniel Gritzer, culinary director for Serious Eats. We linked his recipe for perfect pesto in the show notes. And make sure and check out Serious Eats for all of your recipe needs. Thanks to Erica Thormalin and Jeremy Connor, creators of Waffles and Mochi. You can watch the whole season now on Netflix. I mean, without being cheesy, this is the ultimate example of follow your dream because 15 years later that this got made and then I mean it's unreal so it really is a lesson to tell people to just dream big and stick with it because it has to happen to somebody why not you
4: totally dream big stick with it invite other people on board collaborate yeah I I think if your dream is flexible it can happen don't stop collaborate and listen
1: it's a new (laughs) ice ice baby
4: how appropriate they're from the land of frozen food oh my god you're right
1: Yes, he'll have to be in the next season. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, no! Maybe not. <laughs> Isn't he like a real estate agent now? <laughs> <I know. laughs> this show was produced by Laura Scott and me. Theme music by Prom Queen, and all other music by Rafi. If you're not already, make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. That's B E L L E, and that's where you can find the latest on our quarantine cooking club. You're invited, and you can read all about it on my page. And if you like the show, and I'm assuming you do since you've made it to the very end, please give us a five star rating on your podcast player or write a little review. The latest review comes from Sarah Bell, who says, I enjoy hearing a podcast without political topics. It's a wonderful break and enjoyable listening. Thanks, Sarah Bell. I'm about to get a 23andMe and see if we're long lost sisters. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal.
2: Young people marching, they're marching for our lives.
0: Sorry, my dog is barking.
1: That's okay. okay. It's real pandemic life.
4: His dog's name is Toast, which I feel like uh, is food appropriate. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so when this came up, this show. Sorry, I'm gonna just quiet my dog. Okay. You can tell the story Erica.
1: Let's walk amongst ourselves.